Last week, we began talking about, it was, uh, I, I was really excited about this message, we began talking about the effect of the early church. And we asked the question, what is it about the church that turned the world upside down? Now, usually when you ask that question, typically people will respond and say something like, well, you know, people were, they, it was easy for them to believe it back then. People were superstitious back in those days. You know, the claims of Jesus were more palatable, they were more palpable, so people just accepted them regularly. And then, and then somebody typically says, but we've changed today. Today we're thinkers. Today we're far more skeptical. They were superstitious, but, you know, we're not us. Now, the problem with that statement is, I'm just going to tell you, from a historical perspective is, it is just not true. In fact, if you just read the literature, you will see it's a simple historical fact that in the Greco-Roman world where Christianity was actually born, the claims of Jesus were every bit as inconceivable to them as they would be to a skeptic today. Now, albeit for different reasons, but frankly, the idea that they would believe in Jesus was far more improbable than today. And yet somehow, years ago, these people came to believe these things. Now, you have to understand this. They shouldn't have believed it. I've talked about this before. It did not fit within their view. So, so the question you have to ask is, the question that we should ask because it's a proof is, why did people believe? Do we all understand you have to weigh the evidence? History is a proof. Why did this thing grow? Because I'm telling you it shouldn't have. How did it grow? Because it shouldn't have. So do you remember that last week we began looking at some writings, we began to look at Acts chapter two and Acts chapter four, and then you remember I referenced Acts 11 and 13. If you weren't here, go back and watch these online. But we begin to read the text to get an idea of what is it that made the church grow because we wanna have an idea because we want to make an impact in the world. What is it that they did? Therefore, what is it that we should do? And we saw, if you were here last week, five things that the church did that just, man, it turned the world upside down. In fact, did you know there is a case study about it? It was written to a guy named Theophilus. It's actually a two-volume work. The historian Luke is writing, and it happens to be in your Bible, a two-volume work. It is the book of Acts and the book of Luke's. Did you know that's a two-volume work by the same author? written to a guy named Theophilus. So for example, pull up this scripture and take a look at this. Here's what he writes in Luke. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully done what? Investigated. I often say Christianity isn't a blind faith, it's an evidence-based faith. Notice the earliest Christians, what did they do? They investigated. Wow, it's okay to do that. Let me just free all of you doubters in here. It's okay to question. It's okay to investigate. It's okay to look for truth. In fact, I'd encourage you to do that. I think you're gonna find Jesus if you do it honestly. Usually I find the reason don't believe is not because they've investigated, it's because they don't want to for some internal reason. They've got some sort of agenda going on. But he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. In other words, he's saying, listen, he's saying, Theophilus, I want you to be convinced. I want you to be absolutely sure in your mind that these things are true. Does that make sense to everybody? 
So he's saying, listen, here's what he's saying. He's saying, guys, something's happened. There is a legitimate work of God that has changed everything. And let me tell you what that is. And what I'm about to tell you is the gospel in a nutshell. You ready? If you're ever wondering, how do I share the gospel with somebody? The gospel is just a three-part truth. And I put it in your notes, already written out. You don't even have to take notes. Aren't I great to you? I served you. You don't have to write this down. First part of the gospel. God has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ. See, God, who is beyond time and space, he would have to be to be able to create time and space. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. But God entered into time and into history and took on flesh. In the Greek, that's God and Sarke. He wrapped himself in flesh, became a man. Second part of the gospel is he died on the cross for our sin. Well, I, I left out he lived a perfect life without sin, resisted temptation, did what we should do or couldn't do. He died on the cross then for our sin, and he proved he was God by rising from the dead. In other words, death can't hold God. And then as a result of that, his sacrifice, third part, has made possible a regenerative work of the Holy Spirit that now changes everything. And, and this is what happened to people. In other words, what Luke is trying to tell people is, that's the three parts of the gospel, he's trying to say, don't you understand what was spoken about in the Old Testament is true? Do you remember hundreds of years ago? Joel, look at what it says. God says, in those days, in the days of the new covenant, by the way, stop right there. If you're new here, let me tell you how the Bible's divided. The Bible is divided into two parts. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. The old test, what is it called? The old testament and the new testament. Testament means covenant. It means agreement. So there's the old covenant and the new covenant. And in the old covenant, God says, there's gonna come a day when I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, all people. And your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Your old men are going to dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In other words, it's going to be awesome. Okay? Then, another part of this work, the prophet Ezekiel says, here's what's going to happen. Not only is Joel right, but the prophet Ezekiel says in the Old Covenant, he says, I'm going to give people a new heart. Notice this. And I'm going to put within them a new spirit. I'm going to remove their heart of stone that is hardened toward me. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. Now stop right there. Look up here for just a minute. Do you remember what happened at the moment that Jesus died? The Bible says that there was an earthquake, and in the temple, you've got to go with us to Israel to see where the temple was, and in the temple, which would have stood so high, there was a curtain, and only one person once a year could go beyond the curtain because that was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Holy Spirit dwelt. But at the moment Jesus died, there was an earthquake and the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, splitting the curtain open. And at that moment, God was saying, the Holy Spirit is now accessible to all people. Not just one person once a year. And God says, I'm gonna put my spirit in people and it's gonna do something within them. Now listen, this is how the church gets created. And God starts moving. By the way, that spirit is accessible to you today. Isn't that good news? Today, you don't have to leave here without inviting that spirit into your life and saying, God, come and live within me. Guys, I'm just opening you up to a gift that is like no other gift. It's better than your wedding day. It's better than the birth of your children. It's better than any day of your life to invite the creator of the universe to come in and live within you and say, change my life. 
So you remember, we said, okay, well, when God does that, what are the signs of life that he's done it? What happens inside of a person? So we looked at the early church, remember, and we looked. At first, they united as a congregation. Remember, we talked about Antioch and how the walls came down, and even different ethnic groups that hated each other started to come together. It was amazing. And then you remember, we said they shared to meet each other's needs. Their generosity went up as a result of God's spirit working in them. In other words, they let go of the things they owned and they began to give to other people. Number three, they worshiped in temple courts, meaning they worshiped publicly. They literally went to the Jewish centers and began to worship Christ as the Christ. They were the first Messianic Jews and, and they were very public about their faith. It also, if you remember, we said they didn't just meet publicly like once a week in the temple, they met daily in their homes for fellowship. In other words, they were active in getting together. Do you remember last week I said they couldn't get enough of each other? <laughs> I mean, they saw regular life like work as an interruption to real life. You know, we sometimes have trouble getting together with other Christians and, and they're like, this is what our life's about. Work's the side gig. And it was amazing. And then you remember, we never get the chance really to teach on communion, but we said they remembered Jesus all the time. They celebrated communion. By the way, here at North Point, we do that at the conclusion of every service together. We're gonna do it on Good Friday. We do it Thanksgiving Eve, special occasions. We also have communion for you every single week in our prayer lounge. Did you know that? Every single week, you can go in and remember Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood. Now, what I want to do today is I want to give you the next five, because I said there are 10 things. Let's continue with number six. So, are you ready? Yes. All right, let's do it together. Number six, write this down. What else did they do? They ate together. You're getting excited now, right? They ate together. Some of you are going to do that after this service. Now, what does it mean that they ate together? It means that they had deep friendship. In other words, they were more than friendly. There was an intimacy. There was a vulnerability. They really got to know one another. Now, let me give you an example. In the book of Revelation chapter three, Jesus is talking to human beings and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's metaphorical. He's talking about the door of your heart. He says, if any person hears my voice and opens the door, by the way, he's talking to believers here. Isn't that interesting? Lots of Christians have grown up reading that scripture their whole life, and we use this scripture with non-believers, but this is actually written to believers. It's interesting that you can still close the door of your heart to God, even if you're a believer. So he looks at believers, and he says, behold, I stand at the door of your heart, and I knock, if anyone will open the door, I will come in, and it says, let's read it together. Here, everybody ready? It says, and I will sup with him and he with me. Sup, sup, <laughs> sup. No, not that kind of sup. What does he mean by sup? He means we'll have dinner, we'll have supper. We'll have a meal together. In other words, what they understood in the first century was a meal represented intimacy, closeness. And of course, last week, while we talked about active fellowship that was intentional, and that's true, it's kind of an understatement, because look at the book of Acts. It says, not just that they had fellowship, but let's read it. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the what? They were devoted to it. What does that mean? Listen, guys, you got to get this. This is a phrase I use here all the time. All of our pastors use it. If you've come to know Jesus Christ, you're not just a believer, you're a what? 
you're a belonger. Now that happens at the moment of salvation when you trust Christ. In other words, you come into the fellowship. You become a part of the church. That's what Core 101 is all about. And, and so they celebrated this great thing that they had in common, that they were all believers. They celebrated this new life, but I need you to understand, it wasn't something that just happened to them. They worked it out together. Look, let me give you an illustration. I want you to think about this. Here you have chocolate chips, okay? Everybody think of chocolate chips. You've got chocolate chips, but in order to make chocolate chip cookies, what do you have to do with those chocolate chips? You have to work them into the what? Into the dough. You have them, but you have to work them in. Now listen to me. In the church, you have fellowship, but it's your job to work the fellowship in. Look, I've got cookie dough here. Everybody see it? I've got chocolate chips here. Now, if I pour the chocolate chips in, that's really good, but do I have chocolate chip cookies yet? No, what do I have to do? Man, I gotta start digging in there. Now, I'm gonna tell some of you, your fellowship is just this. You come to church. It's like you're, you're the chocolate chips sitting on the dough, but you're not doing anything else. Some of you are just like that. That's your everyday Sunday. Oh, I pour the dough. Oh, I got chocolate chip cookies. No, you don't. There's no cookies. What you have to do is, you have to start getting in a small group. You have to start, you know, getting into a ministry. You have to start working out what God says is true. You are in the fellowship. Therefore, get devoted to it. Start to work it out. Does that make sense? Now, what do you have? Chocolate chip cookies. And they're so good. And you know what? Fellowship is so good. It is so sweet. It is so wonderful. If you would just begin to work it out like they did. Now, how did they do that? They bore each other's burdens. They were able to be honest with each other about their sin. Never were a people able to be honest like they started being. You know, some people think the way you make it in life is to hide your faults. Guys, that's not true. Let me be the first to step up and tell you, I am a nincompoop. I am such an idiot, it is not even funny. You laugh, but it's not funny. My wife would tell you how not funny it is. <laughs> we think we should get through life by hiding our flaws. Listen, it doesn't work that way. Intimacy comes from vulnerability. Intimacy comes from you getting real with people that you're just a person. So what did they do in the early church? They bore each other's burdens. You have to be able to share a burden to help somebody bear it. They confessed sins. Listen, I, I told, we were having prayer together as a staff. Uh, we do that every Wednesday. We have prayer together as a staff. And I said, staff, any of you have some sins you want to confess? Let's just confess to the Lord right now. By the way, I was the first one to step up because I have sin to confess. But I remember saying to him, guys, nobody's going to be surprised here. I already know you're all sinners. So we might as well just share it. And then they laughed. Oh, we're sinners. You're a sinner. Yeah, so... But we all are. They welcomed and affirmed one another, but they, honest, they, they admonished and also confronted one another. They helped one another. See, that's fellowship. And they worked at it. And they did it 
together. That's what our theme is about, together. In fact, if you remember on Vision Weekend, uh, the last weekend of January, I'm gonna draw your attention to this, in the inside of our Together pamphlet, you remember we said this is what the church is to do. We're to forgive one another. Now, if we're gonna forgive one another, that means we're gonna annoy one another. Isn't that right? There should be a scripture that says annoy one another because you have to annoy one another to be able to forgive one another. Annoy one another, forgive one another, agree with one another. You have to have disagreements to be commanded to agree, don't you? Agree with one another. Bear with one another. Bear each other's burdens. Give preference to one another. Confess your sins to one another. You get the idea. But it's all about doing this together. That's what it means when they ate together. All right, let's go to number seven. You ready? Write this down, number seven. We talked about this too. It says that the church began to give And they didn't just give, but they gave generously and they gave joyfully. It's what we call around here giving gladly. Now, I want to talk to you about how they gave because the scripture says in Acts chapter 2 that they literally would sell their property and possessions and give it to anybody who had need. They didn't just give the extra. They literally reprioritized their life to be able to take care of their giving. But what I really want to highlight today is how joyfully they would do it. It brought them such unbelievable joy to give so freely. You know what it was? What causes a person to give and get joy out of giving? What do you think causes that? Gratitude. I'm going to say that again. What will cause you to be a hilarious giver, a joyful giver, is when you realize how much you've been given. Gratitude. If you think, hey, I have it all together, if you think, hey, I'm the one that's made myself successful, if you think, hey, you know, nobody deserves to get what I got, I'm a self-made man or a self-made woman, you're not going to want to give anything. But if you realize everything you have is because of God, if you realize that you were saved by grace through faith, it is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, it is not of works. You cannot boast. See, generosity comes from a grateful heart. By the way, we just finished four weeks of testimonies of people who have learned to give gladly in our church. You guys remember those? Over the last four weeks, we've shared them. We've had 49 new families step up and start giving for the first time. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome. Now, I'm excited. I'm excited not just that we would meet our vision goals for our budget, and that's what your giving does, When you guys voted yes to give to our, but but what I'm most excited about, I am excited about that, but what I'm more excited about is that God's gonna work in their heart like he never has before. You know, all through the Bible, God says, don't you test me, don't test me on this. In fact, God says, don't test me on anything except for one thing, giving. When it comes to giving, he says, go ahead, test me and see if I won't pour out from heaven blessings. And so, you know, there's this great scripture that talks about how the Israelites would give, and it's such a good, good picture. They would pass baskets of their income. There was a passing of baskets. And look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It says, the priest will take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God, and then you will declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt with a few people, and he lived there. And he became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord. 
the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, our toil, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to a place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. Stop right there. What are they recognizing as they give their offering? They're recognizing what God's done. It's gratitude. And so then because of that gratitude, because of the deliverance, look at what they do. It says, and now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place that basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. What makes you generous? Gratitude does. Gratitude. Let me give you number eight. Write this down. What is it that the early church did that changed the world? Write this down because this is what we've got to do. They built a reputation for love. They built a reputation for love. Now, I've mentioned this book a few times before. It's an amazing book that you should pick up. It's called The Rise of Christianity by a sociologist, historian by the name of Stark. Really, you've got to get it. It's amazing. But he's trying to answer the same question we're looking at. He's saying, why did Christianity succeed in the Roman Empire? Now, guys, let me give you an idea of why this is so important. Do we understand the magnitude Christianity in 100 years went from being about 6% of the population to 50% of the population in only 100 years. That has never happened. That is a miracle. Something must have happened that caused that. And his book is pretty intriguing. You, you gotta pick it up. One of the reasons he brings up is he talks about how these great plagues would go through the land and went through the Roman Empire in fact, uh, the first couple of centuries after Jesus, there were two great plagues. The first one was in 165 AD. The second one was in about 251 AD. They both lasted about 15 years. We, guys, I gotta tell you, that's bad. It was probably something like smallpox. We don't know what it was, but we have some descriptions in history. But gosh, we suffered for about two years with COVID. They suffered for about 15 years with smallpox or something like it. As we look at the references, here's what we know when you read the history. It says, it was absolutely devastating, particularly in the cities. During the height of the second plague, 5,000 people a day died. 35,000 people a week died. Now, these people are dying in Rome. I want you to think about that. We're talking about statistics of 35,000 people a week are dying. Maybe 25 to 30% by the time it was done of the whole population within the Roman Empire. Now that's what they had to go through. The Greeks, the Romans, the pagan majority... And by the way, people in those days had no idea of how to cure things. They had no idea about the source of these things. But there was one thing they did know. They knew that it was spread through contact. So talk about social distancing. As a result, what happened? Listen, here's what happened in history. It's well documented. Everybody started leaving the city in droves. The doctors, the rich, they got out of the cities. In fact... We, there are many accounts you can read that even families, when they saw their children sick, when they saw their brother sick, when they saw their wife sick, they just abandoned their families and get out of the city. They left one another. Who was the one group of people that did not leave? Guess who? The Christians. It's well documented that it was the Christians that stayed in the cities, and not only did they care for their own sick, but they're the ones that developed dynamic nursing services. 
They went out and they brought people into their homes. We have reports about this. They cared for all sorts of pagan sick. And I'm going to tell you, as a result, lots of Christians died. Here's the question I'm going to ask you. Why did they do that? Well, again, I want you to think about the gospel. Why would a Christian do that? Let me just think about this, the gospel. Pagan people, by their worldview, they think that this life is all there is. That's very different than a Christian. See, the way Christians looked at the world, they know that this life is boot camp. They know that this life is just preparation for the next. The Christian knows that this life is a short 70, 80 years, and then we live for eternity with the Father. Pagans had no assurance of salvation. Why were they so eager to split? Because they thought this is all there is. But the Christian thinks differently. Why? Because the Christian doesn't grab onto this life for everything. The Christian looks at the next life and says, I'm going to sacrifice now to make an impact then. This is just a prelude. The Christian knows that death can do nothing except translate me to glory. Why? Because the Christian has the gospel. And the gospel moved into ordinary people. And it gave them a reason to stick around. It's fascinating. Now, Here's one of the great ironies, if you go back into the history, Rodney Stark, here's what he says. He says, people who had the plague, I'm just reading this, he says, if you just took care of them, if you just fed them, if you just gave them drink and just gave them warmth, 50% of the sick would probably recover. But he says, if you abandon them, they're most likely not to recover. So the fact is, Christians saved thousands and thousands of lives because Christians don't abandon people. They built a reputation for love. Write this down. Number nine. Christians built a reputation for self-control. Hey, how's your self-control doing? What did they do? What did they do? Well, as a result of the Spirit of God working within them, which, by the way, you can have today. Again, I'll just remind you. Honestly, their lives changed into such a way that they were nothing less than heroic. In fact, Acts 5 puts it this way. Do you remember what we read in the scripture? Take a look at this. It says, and Peter and the apostles replied, let's read it together. We must obey God rather than human beings. They were heroic. They were heroic. Now, why were they so heroic? Look at verse 31. It says they were heroic because God had exalted Jesus to the right hand as, what are the words? Prince and, do you know what that is in the Greek? It's the word archegos. Everybody say archegos. Turn to somebody and say archegos. There you go. Now you've just learned Greek, okay? You know what it means? When we say Jesus is the archegos, what we mean is that Jesus is the hero. That's what Peter's saying in Acts chapter five. They're saying because Jesus is our hero, because Jesus is our champion, they were saying, look, he's our hero, he's our champion, so I'm gonna give it my best. I wanna be a hero. He's heroic, well he's put his spirit in me, so now I'm gonna be heroic. Do we understand what would give first century the Christians, what would give those Christians the courage to take that it would take to follow Jesus, the self-control. What gave them the ability to conquer fear? 
What gave them the resolve to live a holy life and not be sexually promiscuous? What gave them the courage to stand against everything that was so immoral? Look, I want to show you something. Can I, can I just give you a visual illustration here? Take a look at this picture here. Here's a picture of Israel. as part of Israel. This is what's called the Shephala. We go to Israel every year, by the way. In fact, registration is opening up for our next Israel trip in January, February. Uh, it opens up at the end of this month. Uh, guys, it is going to be an amazing trip this year with Pastor Ronnie and Pastor Kevin. And if you guys know those guys, they are going to have a party bus all through Israel. And it's going to be a lot of fun. But listen, we've already got 15 people that have already signed up before registration is even opened because they want to go. But I got to tell you, it is an amazing place to go. And one of the places that I've read about, I actually haven't been to this particular place, is a place called Betloya. You'll see it there. I'm just going to mark it for you. It's Betloya. And in Betloya, if you go, there's all these caves that are in the ground. In fact, if you just go to this next picture, it looks kind of like this. Now, does that look like a cave to you? No, of course not. But if you just zoom in just a little bit, you can see it gets really dark there at the base of the fig tree because underneath that fig tree, there is a cave. Now, what I want to say here, I just want to stop and just say, the Christians had to hide in the caves, the Christians would have to hide in these caves because they were being slaughtered. They were being killed in the first century for their faith. And in fact, uh, here you can see, I don't know what picture you guys got up right now, but you show them the picture of the guy going into the tunnel. You're way ahead of me, I think. But if you show, the guy's going into the tunnel and then he climbs on in and you can see that that fig tree that's on the outside is growing out of this tunnel. Now, this is where they're hiding. And then if you just go on in there just a little bit more, go ahead. There you go. And then take us all the way in there. I want you to notice what's on the wall. Take a look at that. That's Hebrew writing. Can, you, can some of you make out the cross that's down at the bottom there? Okay, go ahead and uh, go to the next slide. This is what's written there. What that means in ancient languages, Jesus is present. You can see that they've drawn a little fisherman's boat. When Jesus calmed the sea and they drew a cross, a couple of crosses actually. Why? Because at the end of the first century, which by the way, this dates back to, they were hiding for their lives because they were all being killed. And while they were hiding, they were so confident of Jesus, they just said, Jesus is still with us. And they inscribed that. By the way, this is the earliest inscription you can find of the actual writing of first century Christians. It's earlier than any of the copies of copies that we have of scripture. It is quite an amazing thing. But they were so courageous Jesus is present is what it says, right there. In fact, if I go to the, uh, right at the end of the first century, if you go to Tacitus, the Roman historian, here's what he says about Christians. He says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses or they were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as light, nightly illumination. Nero literally would take Christians kill them, cover them with tar, and then light them on fire to light the road. When daylight had expired, Nero offered his gardens for a spectacle and was exhibiting the show in the circus. While he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car, hence even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of what? Compassion. Now, by the way, Tacitus is not a Christian. He's a Roman historian writing this. And he says, we even started to feel a sense of compassion. Why? Because they were heroic. Because they went to their deaths knowing 
that life's not over, but we're gonna serve Jesus no matter what. They were heroes. They conquered fear. They stood their ground. Why? Because what did they say? Look at this, you ready? Look at this next scripture. Put it up on the screen. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If you just go to that Hebrew scripture. Fixing our eyes on who? The what? The the archegos, same word. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The what? The hero of our faith. See, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured. And they said, you know what? <laughs> because he endured, we'll endure. The heroic washed back into their lives. I'm gonna ask you, how has the heroicness of Jesus washed back into your life? What are you willing to stand for? By the way, sometimes it's funny, I hear people say things like, especially skeptics, they say, well, you know, the disciples probably didn't, you know what, they say the resurrection probably didn't happen. The disciples just wanted people to believe it happened, so they come up with theories like they stole his body or something. Guys, no. You don't understand. They weren't eager to believe it. And you'd say, well, they made it up. Well, are they gonna make it up to the point of becoming candles covered with tar and killed? Really? And they shouldn't have believed it. They didn't believe in the resurrection like that. that to think that they would make it up, what did they get out of making it up? In fact, I saw a humorous video. I wanna share it with you just to illustrate what I'm talking about. Take a look at this real quick. Just watch this. I need 100% participation for this to work. Yeah, everyone's here. All 12, 11, 11 of us. Well, what's the plan? Well, as you know, Jesus is dead. But stick with me, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I have a plan. We are going to steal his body. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. What's next? And then, we're going to tell the whole world that you rose from the dead. Oh, <laughs> oh you know I'm in. I love it already. <laughs> all right, classic, classic, then what? And then, we're all going to get brutally murdered. <laughs> wait, 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 come again, come again. Could you go over that last part real, real quick? Oh, what, we get murdered? What's the problem? Uh. I like it, I like it. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, Peach. I love me a good hoax as much as the next guy, right, right? Uh, oh, what's in it for us? Do we all get riches, fame, and fortune first, right? No, no, get this. You're going to be hated, hated. persecuted, and reviled for the rest of your life! Oh! Oh! Okay, guys, okay. Fellas, fellas, uh, look, uh, I, I, I gotta be missing something here, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, why on earth would we do this? Can, can we start over? Oh, okay, we'll start from the beginning. Everybody, for John, yeah. the beloved disciple. So, okay, we go down to Jesus' tomb. I, sounds good. This yeah. is really yeah. easy. Then? We pay off the Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb with their lives. Why, why would 
they do that. Then we somehow roll away the big stone that's in front of the tomb. Obviously, you have to move the rock first. Yeah. And then we steal his body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess. Then we tell the whole world that he rose from the dead and we get brutally murdered for our troubles. <laughs> Epic prank, bro. Peter, you rock. Okay, guys, okay, and then what? Then we all get killed. Come on. When do we see ourselves become exalted and praised? That's just it. You don't! <laughs> okay, I'm gonna stop right there. <laughs> By the way, it goes a little longer. You can watch it on YouTube. Listen, one of the greatest New Testament scholars and frankly, one of the greatest historians alive today is a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He's phenomenal. I'd encourage you to read any of his books. And he has this powerful quote. I want you to see what he says. He says, it cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. Resurrection for them, remember, based on Daniel 12, was something that might happen to us all on a great future occasion when God brought history to an end and the whole world was renewed. It will not do, therefore, to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so unable to come to terms with it that they projected their shattered hopes onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with their cruelly broken dreams. That has an initial apparent psychological plausibility to a 20th century mind, but it will not work as serious first century history. That is so important to remember. No. What gave them our chaos? What gave them self-control? The ability to stand courageous. Can I just ask you a question? How are you standing up for Jesus in your workplace? How's your archegos as you look to Jesus as your hero? Do you know why they believed it? Let's go back to Luke. It says because they carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Something happened in the world. It was because they saw an evidence that was believable. God had come into the world and they gave their lives to it. So Peter then replies, I'm sorry. We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross, but God has exalted him to the place of what? Hero. And he's our hero. And they were heroes. So we have to obey God. By the way, do you know what Peter was saying? I'm gonna close with just a few thoughts and we'll be done. You know what Peter was saying here? I hope you get this. He was saying, look, Christians have to make hard choices in life, but that shouldn't surprise us. Do you know what our problem is as Americans? We've just been pampered. We live in a pampered age. We've grown so comfortable. No, Jesus made hard choices. Let's fix our eyes on him and let the heroic wash back into our lives. Do you see, what do I want you to see? I want you to see that Peter in Acts chapter five is using a word deliberately to a very strong concept. We don't have that concept today of the heroic. But Peter knew it was used in Greek literature, archegos. Do you know that was the word that they used for Pericles and Hercules? Every 
everybody would have understood what Peter was saying in Acts 5. What was he evoking? He was saying, let me tell you about the ultimate hero. Who is the hero of heroes? That's what Peter's saying. And by the way, if you study the heroic in Greek literature, what is it that makes a hero a hero? Are you a hero? What makes a hero a hero? Let me give you a couple things. And, and this is true of all the heroic. You'll know this as I say it. First of all, heroes, write this down, heroes follow character over appearance. Now you know that that's true. You just study all the heroes of, of fiction. Heroes say, I'm gonna do what's right no matter who sees it. That's very different than today. Have you noticed our heroes today are something called celebrities? And celebrities don't care about integrity. They care about image. They care about influence. The big goal of everybody today, including my third grade son, is to become an influencer. Image and influence. I remember I read an article once describing the difference between celebrities and heroes, for example. And here, here's the difference. Celebrities are surrounded by crowds. Heroes will walk alone. Celebrities consult their focus groups before they speak. Heroes consult their conscience. Heroes didn't care how they looked to anybody. They didn't care about the outside. They didn't care if they were liposuctioned. They didn't care if they were airbrushed. They didn't care if they had cosmetics. All that a hero cared about is, who am I when nobody's looking? That's the difference between a hero then and a hero now. Here's the second difference between heroes, you ready? What, what makes a hero a hero? Write this down. Heroes have a faithfulness to something more than their own heart. Write that down. Heroes have a faithfulness to something more than their own heart. Because, see, the mark of a hero is to say, look, because this is true, I'm going to stick with it. I'm sticking with it because it's true, even if it's hard for me, even though it hurts me, even if it's going to be fatal to me. Why? Because it's true. Do you ever wonder why we lack that today? It's hard to stand up today in a culture that says we can't even be sure about what's true. There's your truth. There's my truth. And what do we say to people today? You've probably given this advice maybe. You say to somebody struggling with a decision and you say, oh, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. No, that's the stupidest thing that you can do. No, how about follow truth? How about search God's word? Listen to me, friends. Truth is a hard reality. It is concrete. It is a fixed point. Truth is something that is solid and it's outside of you. Heroes don't ignore the truth. Heroes change because of the truth. Because they're faithful to something more than their own heart. Let me tell you something. The very nature of heroism it tells a hero to say to their inner voice, shut up. Can you do that? When your inner voice is saying run, when your inner voice is saying give in, when your inner voice is saying, well, who's to say what's true? I'm just gonna do this thing. When that inner voice is saying that, a hero says, shut up. I'm not gonna listen to you. I'm going to listen to Jesus who is the Christ. That's what a hero does. 
Do you know before any act of cowardice, a coward listens to their inner voice and starts to say, well, it's no big deal. Well, all truth is relative. I'm just gonna give in. I'm just gonna run. Coward. What makes you a coward? No, a hero is somebody that says, shut up. This is right. And you know what? Because they did that, let me give you the 10th thing. We'll be done. Christians brought people to Christ every day. They brought people to Jesus all the time because they lived so differently. Boy, that we would live this way. And it says in Acts chapter two, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, guys, as we prepare for Easter, I just can't encourage you enough, if you've not been heroic, that this week, man, you would start inviting people to church. And they'd ask you, why? And you'd say, because Jesus Christ is making a difference in my life. And you'd bring them. Bring your friends to join us. In fact, I'd encourage you to get all the details. Now, I do want to point out, like, um, I do want to point out, just like was done earlier, that on our Bullard campus, we are starting on Easter our 8 a.m. early bird service. So if you know people that have to work later on Sunday, or they just, they're the kind of person that's like, well, I'll go if I can just get it out of the way before the picnic. Come to the 8 a.m. We're gonna keep that 8 a.m. going, by the way. If you're somebody that likes an early bird service, just because we've had such big groups of people. By the way, our Bullard campus is not far. Take a look. Uh, I just put up a little map here for you. It is literally uh, four minutes from here. It's right behind the Walgreens on the Fig Loop. You know where the Ride and Shine car wash is. Padded chairs, donuts, you can't miss it. You guys just go there and you'll love it. We're gonna have an 8 a.m. service, so if you wanna come, you can join us for that. But we want to make sure that you invite friends because just after Easter, we're going to kick off a series that will, man, everybody's going to connect to. And it's basically, how do you change your life? How do you change your life? And how do you let God begin to do the things that he wants to do in you that you'll begin to see a difference made? Does that sound good? Amen. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for every man and woman that is here, every man and woman that's watching online or at Bullard or uh, Kerman, Lord, I just pray you would bless them. I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. And Jesus, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you especially, I just pray you'd make yourself known. Father, we wanna be heroic. We wanna be the people that you've called us to be. Help us to do it, God. Help us to live for you like never before. We give you our lives. We give you our heart. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen.